Uh, we're going to take some time now to listen to the Holy Spirit, to see what the Holy Spirit has to say to us uh, this morning. We're going to hear in this part of our, uh, our service, sorry, we're going to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's going to speak to us about prostitutes, about death, about adultery, and ultimately about Christ. So could you turn with me, please, to Judges chapter 16. Apologies, I'm quite croaky this morning, but Judges chapter 16. And we're going to read the story of Samson and Delilah, children. This story written by the Holy Spirit many, many centuries ago. But as much his voice today as it was when it was first written. So Judges chapter 16. And we're back one last time with Samson. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we'll kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound, and then how one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I should become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him uh, with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak. And be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him with hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, 
For I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shekels. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man uh, who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed in his death were more than those he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshetol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us as soon as we pray and open our eyes that we might see. Uh, show us ourselves, show us, uh, we pray, uh, our salvation. And by the gift of your spirit, enlighten us, we pray, in order that we might live as children of the light. Bless us, we ask, trusting only in your grace. Amen. Well, Samson, one last time. He's been an extraordinary figure over the last couple of weeks, hasn't he? And really this morning, as we round off his story, we're going to look at two things, the tragedy of Samson and then the triumph of Samson, the tragedy and then the triumph of Samson. I want you to imagine for a moment, you've just become a Christian. So maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and you're kind of imagining yourself forward, or perhaps you've been a Christian a while and you're looking back and you're trying to think, well, what are the, what are the key things I need to know? 
key things I need to know, either to become a Christian and then to live the Christian life. Someone asked that question, or a minister a long time ago addressed that question, and said there are four things you need to know. Christ, the scriptures, your own hearts. Well, so far you might think, okay, that's pretty catch-all, isn't it? Christ, the gospel, the scriptures. I mean, that's the whole Bible. That's like cheating. Your own hearts. But here's the fourth. I wonder if the fourth would escape us. And Satan's devices. In other words, Satan's tricks and traps. Remember, Satan's our great enemy children. The devil, it's another name for the devil. You need to know, said this minister some three, four hundred years ago, you need to know all his tricks and traps. As the Spirit speaks in Judges 16, I think one of the main things he's doing is shining a light on the tricks and traps of the devil. The Christian life is one lived in, in, in a great sense in a time of warfare. It is not easy being a Christian, at least in one sense. We have an enemy trying to catch us, trying to trip us up, trying to pull us away. If you're not yet a Christian, this might sound strange and Almost incredible, but there is a spiritual power out there desperately trying to prevent you coming to faith. And if you are a Christian, there is someone who is intent from the moment you open your eyes in the morning to the moment you shut them at night, intent on making sure you live the weakest, most dishonorable Christian life he can manage. He can't take away your salvation, but he can try and trip and trap you at every turn. And Judges 16, I think. And the story of Samson helps us understand that uh, and see, I hope, too, some answers to the traps. It's a bit like being taken backstage um, and seeing what the magician's up to. Children, have you ever seen a magician who does all these sort of amazing things? Uh, I was once brought on stage as a kid. I don't know what my parents were thinking. Um, they let me go on stage at, 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 as a kid, um, pulled out of the crowd in one of those um, guillotines. I was absolutely terrified. You, know, you put your head in the guillotine, the thing, and they, they pull the rope, and the blade drops down. And the magician put a put a melon or something in first time. And he dropped it, and the melon was cut in two. And he's like, "Come on, little James is coming on stage." And I was trembling, put on stage, put my head in this thing, and the, the blade dropped, and it sliced the carrots either side of my head, but obviously didn't slice my head off. And as you look at it, you begin to see when you get close. You see what the magician is up to, how his tricks work. That is what Judges 16 is doing for us. So let's start with the the tragedy uh, of Samson. Uh, So far, on the whole, Samson has done a reasonable job. He is a long way off perfect. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll know he's a long way off perfect. But he's done an okay job. He's beaten up a lot of Philistines who are the enemies of God's people, trying to... Stop the Israelites worshipping their God. The Philistines are the bad guys, and he's been bashing them up for about 20 years. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 15, so just a verse before we start it, we read that, that, is, that Samson judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. He's beaten up lions and Philistines, and on the whole, done a reasonable job of it, albeit stumbling along the way. But look how the chapter begins. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. If you follow the the cycles of judges over the last few weeks, you'll know that very often what happens is you get that phrase that chapter 15 finished with. So and so judged Israel for 20 years. And after that phrase, the judge dies And Israel turns to worship other gods, whores after other gods. Here, do you see the difference? It's not 
that Israel goes after other gods, but the judge himself turns adulterer. It's Samson in verse one who goes off to this prostitute. And the tragedy of this chapter is going to be the tragedy of seeing someone so used by God stumble and fall so badly, brought to his knees. The Philistines know they, they need to stop this guy. He's been smashing them up with jawbones and all sorts of things. They, they've got to capture him. So they, they try in the first couple of verses, uh, trap him in the city of Gaza. I mean, Gaza very much in the news at the moment, isn't it? This, this rivalry between Israel and um, the, the nations around has been going on for, for millennia. Uh, they try and trap Samson, but he wakes up and he, he smashes his way out of the city. We're not going to spend much time on, on that incident. But we're going to turn our attention rather to Delilah. Delilah. Uh, In verse four, he sees this woman. Now, we're not entirely sure whether she's an Israelite or a Philistine. I suspect she's an Israelite because she needs to be paid to betray Samson. But whoever quite she is, Samson falls for her. And the Philistines see their, their chance. They know somehow Samson is super strong and they just don't get it. They assume it's magic. And so they want to know the trick. How can we stop him? And so they get Delilah to to try and coax the secret out of him. Now, children, we know why Samson is strong, don't we? He's strong because the Lord has filled him with his spirit. The spirit comes upon Samson and makes him strong, makes him into this great rescuer. But, but there are three signs that Samson is dedicated to the Lord, willing to serve in that way. They've been with him all his life. Right before his birth, his mother was told that he's to be a Nazarite. That is someone who's particularly dedicated to God. A bit like someone who volunteers to be a priest. Except for Samson, it wasn't voluntary and it was to be lifelong. And we said a couple of weeks ago that that meant three things. No beers, no barbers. And no bodies. You mustn't touch a dead body. You mustn't touch any alcohol. And you mustn't cut your hair. The three things a Nazarite must never do. And the focus in our chapter obviously is on the hair. There's nothing magic about his hair. It is simply a sign that he is dedicated to God, trusting in the Lord. And slowly Delilah tries to wheedle the secret out of him. Uh, presumably the way it works is each time he she kind of seduces him and asks him the question uh, the guys are hiding but when she ties him up or puts his hair in the loom or whatever it may be and says samson they're on you presumably that the, the philistines don't jump out because otherwise samson would know what's going on they, they wait but when he frees himself they, they stay in hiding three times he plays with her but the fourth time he's so fed up Do you see? He's vexed to death in verse 16. Day after day, she wheedles and winds him. Come on, if you love me, Samson, why won't you tell me the secret of your strength? And he breaks. He breaks. And explains about being a Nazarite. Verse 17, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God. I've been dedicated to God. It is the dedication to God that makes him strong, and the hair is the symbol of it. And so when he reveals that secret and she's able to shave his head, it's as if he's sort of undedicating himself. He's betraying his calling. And so lo and behold, this fourth time when she shaves his head, out the Philistines pop and capture him. 
What on earth is going on? What on earth is going on in this story? Well, it'll help us, I think, to, to see that, that Samson is meant to be an embodiment of Israel. He is, as it were, the, the, the people of Israel summed up in one man. His whole life has been like the story of God's people, Israel. It, it began, you might remember, Samson began with a miraculous birth. Just as Israel began with a miraculous birth. In Israel's case, the nation, it happened in two ways. First of all, their father, Abraham, and Sarah, their their mother, the beginning of the Israelite people, they couldn't have children until God miraculously came and Isaac was born. And then in another sense, symbolically as it were, when they were led out of Egypt, remember they were captured in Egypt for many years. God said, I'm going to rescue my son, called Israel my son. I'm going to rescue out of Egypt. They did so with all sorts of miracles, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the Passover. Both Samson and Israel begin with miraculous births, miraculous beginnings. Both are chosen by God and set apart to be holy. Israel was meant to be a holy nation described by God as a royal priesthood. You're meant to be different. You're meant to be particularly set apart from me, as was, of course, Samson. Both Keep committing adultery, whether literally in Samson's case with various women or spiritually. One of the great accusations God brings against his people is you are unfaithful to me. I'm your God, your husband, and still you go after other gods. Both ultimately end up enslaved until they cry out for rescue. So so Samson is in a sense, he's, he's every man, he's all of us. He's all of God's people at least. And Delilah, I think, is there as a picture of temptation. Amongst other things, she's a picture of temptation. She shows us how God's enemies work to undermine, to weaken his people. So when you see Delilah, when you hear about Delilah, don't just think sexual immorality. I mean, that is very obviously there on the surface. But she's a picture of more than just that. She's a picture of the seduction of sin. In fact, it's quite possibly Delilah who stands behind the, 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 the character in the book of Proverbs, who is the adulterous woman. And the role of the adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs is always to seduce the believer away from the Lord, not just with beauty and charm and sex, but with anything that will pull them away from God. She is, as it were, temptation embodied in a person. So let's think a little bit about how this temptation works. First of all, it's selective. It's selective. Delilah, the Philistine, Satan targets particular weaknesses. They know they can't bring Samson down in a fist fight. Okay, if it's just sort of shirts ripped off, muscles out, let's go head to head, hand to hand. They know they're going to get beaten. They will not defeat Samson like that. So what do they do? They, they work out where he's weak. And they know already where he's weak. It's in the whole area of, of women. He can't resist. He's already taken one Philistine bride. He's already at the beginning of our chapter slept with a prostitute. And now with Delilah, here's a third at least. The devil knows what he's doing when he comes after you. He knows where your weak points are. Do you know the story of Achilles? You ever learned the story of Achilles in school? He was a great warrior, a great Greek warrior, and nobody could beat him. Anytime anyone came onto the battlefield to fight him, they would always lose. 
Achilles could beat everybody. He was the He-Man. He was the Rock. Um, I don't know who the kind of what cartoons you watch nowadays. He was undefeatable. Okay, the strongest man. I don't know who you think the strongest man you can think of is. Achilles was that. But it had been prophesied of him that he had one weak point that he would be killed and defeated through his heel. It's interesting, is it? Through the heel. You wonder how much that's picking up biblical uh, imagery. One weak point. And lo and behold, that's where he was hit. Well, so too with Samson. One weak point, at least, was women. And that's where he was tempted. The devil knows what he's doing. He has an apple for Eve. He has wine for Noah. He has a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, for David. He has a purse of silver for Judas. What has he for you? Do you see, in all those, those cases, what the devil is doing is trying to give you something. We think of the devil as someone who's sort of horrible and mean and wants to claw and take stuff away from you. And ultimately, that is what he wants to do. He wants to take away from you salvation. He wants to take away from you knowledge of the Lord. But he does so most of the time by giving. He gave the fruit to Eve. He gave Bathsheba to David. He gave wine to Noah. He gave silver to Judas. What is it that he could give you that will pull you away from the Lord Jesus? Many years ago, I remember walking uh, across the clifftops in Dorset. Uh, I would have been late teens, I guess. And... um, uh, I was on a kind of summer camp for kids and a, a minister, a much older minister, um, said to me, he said, John T, um, uh, if I was Satan, unusual start of a sentence from a Church of England minister, but if, if I was Satan, how would I best tempt you? And I, 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 I can still to this moment, I remember thinking, I know how I'd do it. And I remember lying to him and saying something else because I was too embarrassed to confess what the actual truth was. But in many ways, it's, it's a brilliant question. It's a weird question, but a brilliant question. So ask it of yourself. If you were Satan, how would you tempt yourself? How would you trap yourself, trick yourself? Do you know your own weaknesses? Remember that quote at the beginning, four things you need to know, Christ, the scriptures, your own heart, and Satan's traps. Where are the weak points? And they're likely the things that you like most in life. Satan wants to give to pull you away. It's selective. Secondly, it's seductive. See verse 5. The Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said to Delilah, seduce him. In other words, children, it's attractive. Temptation is attractive. Uh, Delilah was beautiful. Sin very often and temptation very often is attractive. What would it look like if Satan took over your life? The the, the picture you're imagining, if you follow down the kind of stereotypical view of Satan, the picture you're imagining might be one of utter ruin and chaos. If Satan ruled my household, that it would all be theft and murder and bloodshed and horror. But again, following on from our last point, Satan is cleverer than that. As a minister out in, uh, in the States, in Philadelphia, he, he was asked, what would it look like if, if Satan got control of Philadelphia? 
And I think the person asking the question was expecting, you know, crime rates would soar, the prisons would be overflowing. And he said, the streets would be tidy. Children would call their father's sir and their mother's ma'am. People would work hard, play their sports, nod to each other and greet each other warmly in the streets and Christ would be ignored. What he was doing was painting almost the American dream. It's what we want. Charming kids playing their sports, obeying their parents, everyone trotting off to work and living in nice houses and mowing the lawns. And, and Satan's totally happy with that as long as it means you're ignoring Christ. Not trying to live for him, not coming to him for grace. Sin is seductive. Once he's selected the temptation for you, he'll make sure it glitters like gold. But inside, what inside is dung. Children, anything that pulls you away from Jesus, it's like, I'm sorry to be a bit crude here, but it's like, imagine a dog poo that had been coated in gold paint. So when you first went to it, it looks shiny. And you think, oh, I want to get that. Pick it up. And then inside it's disgusting. That, that is what sin is like. It has got attraction to us. It does make us want to go that way. And so I suppose this forces us to ask the question, are we alert to the dangers of the good things in life uh, as well as the obviously sinful? We know we're meant to avoid drunkenness, pornography, whatever it may be. But it's possible Satan is giving us loads and loads of great things that are so filling our time, our minds, our hearts that we have no time whatsoever for Jesus. Or we won't risk anything for him because we don't want to lose or risk losing the good things that we've got. And the bizarre thing about us, we're so perverse in our hearts that even, if I can put it like this, even bad sins are attractive to us. What do I mean? Well, this is perverse, but, but we, we can sort of perhaps understand, it's not that it's good, but we can understand how someone is attracted to someone beautiful. Even if it's adulterous, we understand it. It's wrong, but we understand it. But the perverse thing about us is we can even enjoy things like being angry. In some perverse, deep down way, we won't stop being angry with our spouse or our children or our co-workers because we're enjoying it. We're finding pleasure in hurting them. We're finding pleasure in, in feeling wronged and hurt. And that there's something about the anger. Again, it's totally perverse and twisted, but there's something about it that we're actually enjoying and don't want to give up. We don't want to let it go. We don't want to forgive and move onwards. It is seductive. We enjoy withholding mercy and making others feel bad. You can do it with other sins, not just anger. Sin is seductive. It's selective, it's seductive, it makes us thirdly stupid. Can you hear the S's, children? Try my best. Selective, seductive, it makes us stupid. Didn't you think that the story of Samson was ridiculous as we went through? What is he playing at? Three times she says, tell me the secret. And then she tries to follow through on that plan, being it tying the hair up or whatever it may be, tying me with bowstrings. Three times... And it is, he keeps going with it. He keeps playing with it. Why does Samson keep going? Why after the first one? 
So verse uh, seven, the first time, if you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become weak. So children, bow and arrow. Samson says, look, take the strings off a bow and arrow. And if you tie me with seven of those, then I can't be, you know, I, I can't be strong anymore. You'll be able to, people will be able to capture me. And she does it. Why does Samson, after that, not think, wow, Delilah, what a baddie, and, and just get rid of her? He keeps going. What is, I think, a picture of the way that sin is so seductive and so attractive and so pulls us in that it begins to make us stupid. He thinks he's in control. He thinks he can dabble and play and still be okay in the end. We're like that, aren't we? We think we're in control of ourselves. I'll just do it one more time. I can, I can stop any time, one more drink, one more look, whatever it may be. I can stop and... T- but we don't realise that actually we're becoming enslaved. It's making us stupid. I wonder if you've ever watched or, or, uh, the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe or read the books, the Narnia stories, perhaps heard them in the car. Do you remember Edmund? One of the, one of the four bo- uh, two boys, one of the four children. And Edmund, when he goes into Narnia, he meets the white witch who is, is meant to be Satan. She's a picture of Satan. What, what does she do? She doesn't frighten him by kind of roaring at him or setting him on fire. She gives him something, doesn't she? Do you remember what she gives him? Yeah, Turkish delight, that's right. She gives him Turkish delight. Now, I think Turkish delight is disgusting. It wouldn't have worked on me. But she'd have given me a, oh, a I don't know, a Toblerone. I'd have loved a Toblerone. And, and as soon as she gives him, it's magical Turkish delight. He, he has some, and he's not then full. He wants more and more and more and more. The more he ate, the more he wanted. And, and it, we're even told that he begins to feel sick, but he still wants to eat more. Sin is like that. It makes us stupid. It's like an octopus. John sin's like an octopus. Imagine swimming and an octopus comes up. Big octopus. It's got all its tentacles, eight legs, isn't it? Or whatever they're called. Coming to try and sort of grip around you. That's why time and time again in the Bible we're told to flee temptation. Not to play with it. Not to dance around the edge, but flee. If you're walking on a cliff top, you don't try and walk as close to the edge as you can while still staying safe. You, you stand well back. Don't think, whatever it is that you're trifling with, and frankly for all of us, there'll be something. There's none of us who Satan isn't after. Whatever it is, don't think you can play with it a little bit. Uh, It might be that for someone, uh, or other, maybe more than one of us here this morning, you know you're playing with danger. You know very clearly what the Spirit is speaking to you about this morning, you know you need to leave. You know you need to break free. But you've been telling yourself you can just keep going back once more. Hear this warning. Sin is lethal. Look where it leads to Samson. And let's not miss the obvious one. For all that Delilah is a picture of sexual morality and seduction and sin in general, she is, well, she is a literal seductress, isn't she? How many men and women have fallen through adultery? I was looking through some old notes. I've preached once before on Samson. Looking through old, uh, old notes. I'd written then of four people I knew who were with me at Bible college who had fallen into adulterous affairs. That was a number of years ago, and the number's bigger now than it was then. 
the four men and women who were training for ministry, keen Christians, all the rest of it, but were sucked in by adulterous affairs. And when you talk to people in those situations, the same line comes almost every time. I never thought I would do that. I never thought I would do that. Particularly in the, in the realms of, of affairs. For those of you married, or those of you single and, and messing around with people you shouldn't be. Uh, for men, very often, it's not actually lust and sex explicitly that makes them trip. I remember one ministry leader who, who worked with people who'd got themselves in these kind of messes, speaking to a group of us about it. And he said, almost never was it just sheer lust and sex that led someone into the, to the affair. Uh, rather, it's about the guilty parties trying to recapture the excitement of high school or college dating and the hormonal rush that comes with it. It's emotional intimacy, he said, that almost always opens the door to the affair. Temptation makes us stupid. Do not play with it. Do not play with it. And ultimately, it leaves us as slaves. That's how the story ends, isn't it? Verse 17. They jump out. Uh, she shaves her, his head in verse 17. And in verses 20 and 21, she, she torments him. The Philistines jump up. He awakes. But nothing. His strength is gone. The Lord has left him at the end of verse 20. Chilling words. And the Philistines seize him, gouge out his eyes, and brought him back to Gaza in chains. Blind, captured, and enslaved. There is Samson. That is what sin does to us. Blinds us, enslaves us, captures us. A few years ago, there was an uh, article in the paper about a guy. I don't know anything about him. He's called Corey Byrne. Uh, He's in America. Uh, Corey Byrne had a pet. His pet was a boa constrictor. And the boa constrictor one day turned on him and ate him. There are some things you can't domesticate. You can't play with. So you don't want a boa constrictor, a massive snake. You don't want that as a pet, do you? Also too with sin, be it sexual or otherwise, we cannot domesticate it. We cannot make peace with it. We must always be at war. I think of another friend many years ago now who um, told me they worked in a place where lots of beautiful people would walk past, worked in a shopping centre, a lot of beautiful people would walk past. And so he, he, would, he would work in his booth and he took out his contact lenses so he wouldn't be tempted to look, wouldn't be tempted to lust. Yeah, there's godliness. There's wisdom. The tragedy of Sam- Samson. But before we finish, we need to see the triumph too. The triumph too. In verses 23 to the end of the, the story, we get, we get some hope. Uh, the, the corner turns in, in verse 22, do you see? The hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. That there's a turn that the Lord hasn't abandoned him. That's good news already, isn't it? Do you see the grace of God? We saw this a couple of weeks ago when, when Nick preached, or a week ago I think it was, when Nick preached. God is willing to use even Samson to rescue God has not abandoned even Samson after all he's done. And so he's brought out for sport. And for the first time in verse 28, he prays. 
he's there. All the Philistines are on the roof of this temple. They, they're mocking him, playing with him. You know, let's have a good laugh at him. Our God's conquered him. And for this first time, he prays. There's grace again. Oh, Lord, please remember me and strengthen me only this once. And Samson again becomes the conqueror. How does he do it? Do you see in the, in the story, children, how does he do it? He's there in the, in the, in the temple. He's, he's bound. He's blind. But he asks the boy, this young lad leads him. He says, put, put my hands on the pillars. And there are 3,000 Philistine lords, you know, generals and soldiers and captors, um, captains on the roof. Put my, put my hands on the pillars. And then he prays, give me my strength back just once, Lord. And the Lord does. The Lord does. And with all his strength, he pushes, verse 30, and the temple collapses and 3,000 of them are killed. How does Samson conquer his enemies? Through his death. And again, it's extraordinary, isn't it? If I was to have stood up here at the beginning and and, and before we'd read the the passage, said, look, I I want you to imagine a person. Children, who am I speaking about? He's a saviour and an an extraordinary being, an angel appeared to his mum before he was born to announce that he was going to be born that he would be a savior to his people the spirit came upon him as he grew up to empower him but he was betrayed by one of his own by those closest to him betrayed for a purse of silver he was handed over to his enemies in chains in cuffs who, who, who had his sight removed who brought him out for sport to mock and torture him but who then died winningly, entrusting himself to God. And in that death, he saved his people. Well, you know who I was talking about. Or would you? Because there are two answers, aren't there, at least. Samson and Jesus. He is in shadowy form, Samson. He is a shadowy form, a little glimpse of the Lord Jesus, who in his death, having never committed any of the sins and adulteries of Samson, but in his death, willingly died in order to defeat, well, defeat our enemies, in order to defeat ultimately Satan. Jesus at one point in his ministry compares himself to Samson, says, look, I'm like a strong man who comes in and binds the enemy and then sets free all those captured in his house. The enemy is the devil. Jesus defeated the devil, but defeated the devil on the cross. How? Because if Jesus dies on the cross, paying for all our sins, he, he takes away all our guilt, everything you've ever done wrong, and he rips it up. And so Satan has got nothing to accuse you with anymore. Satan will come to you and say, you might as well keep looking at what you shouldn't be looking. You might as well keep going with that affair. You might as well stay in that sin because you are a failure. You are useless. You're rejected and despised by God. You are not loved. There is no hope. So in despair, just keep going. But, but Jesus comes and says, no, I've paid for all that. You are a child of God. However little you feel it, you are full of my spirit. You are loved. It is not hopeless. The debt against you has been cancelled. Satan has nothing on you. He is lying. Not only that, but he pours his spirit upon you. 3,000 die as Samson pushes the pillars. But when the Lord Jesus dies, he ascends to heaven, pours out his spirit. And on the first day of the new covenant, the the day of the church, as it were, at Pentecost, the spirit is poured out and 3,000 believe when they're filled with the spirit. You are new people, the Lord Jesus says to you this morning, if you put your trust in me. Because he is the true son. We said, I think, a couple of weeks ago, Samson means little son, baby son. And Delilah means night. In Samson's story, the night conquers the sun. The darkness wins. 
But in the Lord Jesus, the sun rises. As was predicted, Malachi said, one day the sun will rise with healing in its wings, picturing the Lord Jesus. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, when he hears that Christ is coming, rejoices that the sun has risen on us. The sun has come to rise on us. And that image of Jesus rising out of the darkness of the tomb, emerging from the darkness of Calvary, the cross, Golgotha, in resurrection light, that, that image is picked up by Paul in the, in the book of Romans and applied to us. It's Romans 13 as we finish. Besides, brothers and sisters, this you know. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. For salvation is now nearer than when we first believed. That's true, isn't it? Heaven, the return of Christ is nearer to you today than it was when you first believed. So don't live like a child of darkness, like a defeated one. And on he goes, the night is gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Live as people of the light. Let us walk properly as the, in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision, give no opportunity to the flesh to gratify its desires you are new but not because there's anything power in you but because christ has come forgiven you and poured his life-giving spirit on you the light is within you sin does not need to win if you feel like it has conquered you if delilah has won the night has overcome the dark the 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 the, the day then you need to look to the lord jesus and see in him all the power you need flee sin find total forgiveness whether you've sinned for the first or the thousandth time this last day, total forgiveness, total love, total embrace, and total power to live as children of the light, put to death whatever remains of the night. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are sorry that we so often stumble along as if we're still in darkness, living in, in darkness, living as children out of the devil rather than of our heavenly Father. And we pray in your mercy that you would lift our eyes to see the welcome of the cross, how the love of the Lord Jesus, the grace of the Holy Spirit, the embrace of you, our Heavenly Father. And we pray too that you would help us to count ourselves dead to sin, to know that the sin no longer has to master us, enable us to wake up to any temptations, to see where they lead, destruction, and to flee and to embrace a life of, of light and holiness and joy. Father, these are gifts from above. We beg them from you. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.